listening to Black Mirror Reflections, a podcast thinking through the technology, philosophy, morality, and politics of the series Black Mirror. Welcome back to Black Mirror Reflections. Today, I am joined by my first ever return guest, Dr. Amin Allred, who you may remember from this podcast's very first episode on the national anthem. Ammon has graciously agreed to return today to talk with me about Hated in the Nation, the sixth episode of season three of Black Mirror, which first premiered in 2016. Dr. Ammon Allred is Associate Professor in the Department of Philosophy and Religious Studies at the University of Toledo and a lover of tacos, irony, and bad reality television. I gave a more extended introduction of Ammon at the beginning of our episode one conversation about the national anthem. So you should definitely go back and listen to that if you haven't already. And I won't repeat my gushing fangirl routine again, but I do want to say that one of the reasons I invited him back for another go is that this time around, he is auditioning for the co-host role in whatever podcast I do next. So the original plan for Black Mirror Reflections was to do one podcast episode for each of the 22 Black Mirror episodes, and we're more than halfway through that run now. If you listeners have ideas about what you'd like to hear in the next podcast or ideas about Ammon as a co-host, please do share them with me either on the Black Mirror Reflections podcast page on Facebook, or you can tweet the podcast at BMR underscore podcast. I also want to say that we're recording this episode on January 12th, 2021. So the week between the January 6th Capitol insurrection and the January 20th inauguration of President-elect Joe Biden. As of today, Trump has been permanently banned from Twitter and indefinitely banned from Facebook. The extreme right-wing social media site Parler has been all but removed from the internet. And Congress is currently preparing to re-impeach President Trump. Those current affairs, I imagine, will be relevant to our discussion today, because it's worth noting that although this episode, Hated in the Nation, is primarily about social media, it's also the Black Mirror episode with the highest body count. Now, with that context properly set, welcome back, Ammon. Hey, thanks, Lee. Thanks for having me. And thanks for setting up a hashtag where Black Mirror Reflection fans uh, tweet death to Ammon so they don't have to have me as a (laughs) co-host. No, I'm really happy to be back. I've been loving the the podcast. I've loved all the conversations so far. So I'm really happy to come back. Well, I do want to say that you really kicked it off to a great start. And I really appreciate you and the other initial five guests for getting this thing rolling. I've been having a great time doing it. And I'm kind of sad about seeing it end, but I'm actually looking forward to moving on to something else. So, Ammon, as you know, at the beginning of every Black Mirror Reflections podcast episode, I asked my guests to summarize the Black Mirror episode that we're going to be talking about. So could you go ahead and summarize Hated in the Nation? Yeah, I will. This one has a lot of detail, so I'm going to try to do a quick summary. So this episode, Hated the Nation, is filmed as a police procedural as a detective story, which I think is going to be important. The two key detectives in it are Karen Park, played by Kelly McDonald, who's been around for a while, who's this sort of jaded, glazed over homicide detective. And she's recently been given Blue Colson as her new recruit. Blue Colson, we learned, has just come over from Digital Crimes, which Karen Park and the other homicide people seem to have very little regard for. 
they ask at one point, they ask, why has she come over? And it's because she saw, and this is a shout out to, I know one of your favorite episodes, White Bear. She was the person who cracked this famous child abductor and torturers. I think she calls it his folder of souvenirs. Yeah. Presumably some really horrific images that she's seen. And so she's left, not just because she's been traumatized by this, which is Karen part assumption, but because she wants to do things in the real world, she says, right? She wants to make a real difference, not just after the fact. So anyway... Their first case, this this notorious TV columnist has been killed right in the middle of a hate campaign. But Karen is convinced it's the usual suspects of drink, drugs, or domestic violence, right? And, and so it's going to be the husband, right? While they're investigating this, we see another guy, this rapper named... Uh, what's his name, Tusk, who spouts <laughs> off on like a nine-year-old kid on TV and suddenly becomes the target of a hate campaign online. And sure enough, soon enough, he ends up dead too. So while they're investigating these murders... And sort of going back and forth on what leads to follow and what leads not to follow, how relevant is online outrage to real people's deaths? And at a certain point it emerges, what's happened is that these people have been killed by these autonomous drone insects or ADIs, is what they refer to them as the episode, these tiny bees, which have in the face of climate collapse. I think it's interesting, this is one of the few times that Black Mirror mentions climate collapse. But in the face of climate collapse, they've made these autonomous drone insects, these bee simulating robots. And it seems that some of them are going rogue. So now suddenly the investigation becomes, why are some of these going rogue? Well, it turns out that somebody has set up a game called the Game of Consequences, where if enough people tweet death to whoever, whoever the current target of internet outrage is, at five o'clock that day, that person will be targeted by drones and be killed. So Joe Powers, this TV journalist, is the first person. The second person is this rapper Tusk. Third person is a nobody who's done sort of a grotesque act in front of a war memorial. And day four, everybody's figured out what's going on. Everybody in the nation knows what's happening. People are getting terrified. I think with a prime minister or some high up official is convinced he's going to be the next person. So he's putting all this pressure. And it's at this point that they crack the case. They figure out, oh my goodness, there's this disgruntled employee, Garrett Scholes. He has set up this game because he thinks that people have too much power or people don't take their consequences seriously enough. People are too cruel. And he's just going to apparently keep on doing this. So how are they going to stop it? Well, Blue, this digital sleuth, uses her knowledge of social media to figure out where Garrett has been manufacturing this. They've managed to commandeer his hard drive. They take it to the company that manufactures these ADI. And they've got this new patch that they put in that's going to fix everything. Right as they're about to do it, of course, their boss, this guy, Sean, is demanding they put it right away. At a crucial moment, both Karen and Blue say, no, don't do it yet. This could be a trap. Sean doesn't listen. They upload this file. It is a trap because as you've already mentioned, this is the highest body count. We're only at four now. Plenty of Black Mirror episodes are more than four. Well, it turns out that the real targets are not the hated of the nation people. It's everybody who's played the game of consequences. 400,000 Twitter users who tweeted death to somebody immediately commandeered by bees and are killed. So there's a lot of detail that goes into the episode. That's the basics of it. But hopefully that at least gives folks some of the broad contours. And maybe we should also say that there is a, it's hard to call it a coda because it's 20 minutes long, but there is a coda at the end of the episode where Blue, the, as you say, internet sleuth detective, ends up staging her own suicide. And in fact, following digital traces of the perpetrator all the way to Central or South America and tracking him down. We don't actually see the bad guy get nabbed in this police procedural, but yes. Do you think, well, that's a good question. Do you think that they're, that I don't think she's going to nab him, to be clear. I think she's going to kill him. 
but <laughs> but you're right we don't oh. see what's going to happen but yeah, so yeah. you're assuming that she nabs him I assume, i'm assuming she's going to kill him i mean that's interesting because i do think that she is presented as someone who wants to make a difference in the real world is really committed to idealistic notions of justice so yeah that would incline me to think that she nabs him but also maybe not so this was actually one of the episodes that I was the least interested in mm-hmm. until about a month ago. <laughs> uh, when <laughs> Whatever I, happened. Yeah. Well, until about a week ago. I mean, you and I had been talking about you returning to this podcast to do this episode. And I know that you've always really loved it, but I've always been kind of met about it. Then this last week happened and I thought... Oh my God, this is suddenly weirdly relevant again. So maybe I'd like to start with just talking about how relevant this is to what's going on in the United States right now. So first of all, we were going to record this last week, and I'm really glad we didn't because I think that our conversation, I think that... I do think that it's very weirdly relevant. And I think that it will give us a chance to talk about something that I don't think I personally understand well yet. And and I'm confident most Americans don't, right? And including most of the media about what exactly took place on Wednesday, what role social media has played leading up to it. I'm going to guess based on some of our previous conversations that one thing that's going to come up here is to what extent is this about cancel culture? Um, And let me just say that I think that if this episode is about cancel culture, it fails as a show for a lot of reasons. We we, sorry to jump in here, but we should also know that this episode came out in 2016 and the term cancel culture is much more recent than that. That's a good point. So I watched it like a month and a half ago and again last night. And I think even in between those two watchings, what struck me more and more is that it's not about whatever we want to call cancel culture. This is an episode about social media memetics and terrorism. And that's what we saw unfold last week and what I think we're going to continue to see unfolding for the foreseeable future. Yeah, I also agree that I'm very glad that we didn't record this last week. And part of the reason that I'm very glad that we did not record this last week is because I think it was the day after Christmas or maybe it was on Christmas Charlie Brooker released this sort of mockumentary that he titled Death to 2020, which is clearly in reference to this episode. And for Black Mirror fans, that was a really beautiful Easter egg. We were all like, yeah, seriously, I will also hashtag, which most people did, hashtag Death to 2020, right? So now we're all going to die, right? Yeah. So what's interesting (laughs) is that, of course, that was a joke. I mean, presumably a joke, but it's so not a joke. Less than 10 days later, it's completely not a joke. We're embroiled in this conflict that has been almost entirely propagated on social media. No, I I think it's really it's really relevant. And one thing that I hope we can talk about some which is showing up as I'm trying to make sense of what happened last week, is how we negotiate the difference between serious and unserious utterances in social media space. You know a lot more about philosophy and technology than me. I don't know the, the term we should use here, but like I'm trying to sort of think of a way to describe this mediated space where what Blue, I think, wrongly calls the real world, interacts with the digital world. One of those points where the IRL world and the social media world interact is in the TOCs or TOSs, terms of conditions or terms of service of various social media platforms. And I actually went back and looked this up yesterday. Mm -hmm. 
it turns out that in 2017, there was a massive overhaul. So this is a year after this episode comes out. Mm -hmm. There was a massive overhaul in Twitter's terms of service that included a much more expansive regulation of hate speech, of Mm. literally what they call incitements to violence. And, you know, I don't think that we can draw a direct connection between the Black Mirror episode and the revisions of Twitter's terms of service. Obviously, the other thing that happened in 2016 is that Donald Trump got elected. But it is interesting to note that those TOSs are really the guard between translating online hate to in real life violence. Mm-hmm. Can we talk some about this online hate to real life violence connection? Let's do it. Because I think that this is where this episode is both very problematic, but also potentially really brilliant. So we meant, I mentioned this term cancel culture, and I'm going to throw it out there, even though I think it's a red herring in a lot of ways. One of the things that we often talk about in cancel culture is internet mobs, or these calls to violence. And certainly built into the title of the episode, Hate of the Nation, there's this notion that we're going to see people unfolding their hate. And, and Garrett Scholes in his manifesto that he encodes on the hard drive that they find. Uh, which, is, says, which, is titled, which is titled The Teeth of Consequence. Is it? I didn't yeah. catch that. That's yeah. great. <laughs> so the, the game yeah. that he designs is called The Game of Consequences. Game of Consequences, yeah. Uh, but the manifesto is called The Teeth of Consequence. In Interesting. I didn't catch that. Um, I mean, I think implying that there is a clear connection between online hate and IRL violence. So the first day, only like 20 people use the hashtag. And at least one of them is this preschool teacher who also sends a cake to Joe Powers, this woman who has published this let's be clear, really vile and also potentially hate speechy essay in media. So is she guilty of hate speech when she tweets the hashtag, hashtag death to Joe Powers? I mean, this is a really good question, Ammon, because I honestly think in the real world, and I hate that term, but in the real world, if I stood in a public square and said death to Ammon, how am I not culpable of both inciting violence and committing hate crimes? So when they ask her this, what she, one of the things she says is, well, I wasn't serious. Is that fair or not? I mean, that's maybe your question, right? Now, to be clear, and I actually think this is relevant, if you stood in a public square and said, death to Ammon, I'd be like- Which I've done so many times, have, and, it, right? and yet here you are for the second and time. I'd be like, Lee, you know, like, where, where are we going to go get a drink, right? Because <laughs> I would know you were joking. Right. But that's exactly the point. All of the context clues that we have in real life, interpersonal communication that might indicate to us that something is a joke or that something is not to be taken seriously or that something is being said in a context which is not the context of actual incitement to violence or hate speech are lost in Mm. social media communications. Yeah, I mean, I think that one question is, is are they lost or are we not, have we not yet established the conventions by which we discover them? And those might be different things. I think, you know, so philosopher Jacques Derrida in sort of a very famous as a signature events context spends a lot of time dealing with this distinction that another philosopher, John Austin, makes between serious and unserious utterances, right? John Austin's famous book, which I think is relevant to this essay, was entitled How to Do Things with Words, had to do with what he called the the illocutionary or performative force of language. So sometimes when I say things, I'm actually making things happen IRL. And like when I say I do in a marriage. This is is a classic example, right? So 
you get in front of a minister, you, your partner says, I do, you say, I do, the minister says, now you're married. And now legally, suddenly your entire set of relationships of the world have changed. This becomes very relevant in the context of hate speech. If I'm just saying, I hate so-and-so, well, most people say that's just a constant of utterance. I'm just making a statement about my state of mind, which might be warranted, but which doesn't entail anything. Whereas if I say it in a way that, say, incites somebody to kill Joe Powers or to storm the Capitol building, well, now I'm not just engaged in a constant of utterance, I'm engaged in a speech act that has real force in the real world. And of course, the crucial thing that Austin wants to throw out there and say, well, this is only true when we're talking about serious utterances. And he says, I'm, of course, excluding non-serious utterances. And what Derrida will do in this essay that gets a lot of people mad at him, but which I think is very relevant both to what we saw last week and also this episode and to social media in general, is he'll say that you can't make that distinction in a programmatic way, that there's no hard and fast rule to determine what is and what isn't a serious utterance. And so that when I just think oh, I'm just doing nothing by tweeting death to Joe Powers, like it could be taken, right? A computer program could be taking that as a code that will in fact lead to death to Joe Powers. I, I can't exclude that no matter what my intentions are. Yeah, I think that's true. And at least in the context of the episode, I think that would be a viable defense for the people who tweeted death to about the first two or even three victims here. But by the fourth victim, people are aware that hashtag death two actually is resulting in the death of people. And so then we're in the area of legally speaking, reckless endangerment. You know, it's like, well, I didn't know that they were going to die, but I should have been able to see, right? That Yeah, you can, you can no longer claim it's an unserious utterance, for sure. Right. So I think that this is where maybe I want to go back to your claim that we just haven't established the protocols for how to make those distinctions in online speech. You know, if I were to go and stand in the middle of a town square <laughs> and say death to Ammon, <laughs> you know, death to Ammon, and, and then someone went and killed you. I think that I could clearly say, well, I didn't say go kill Ammon, right? Or I didn't say join me in executing Ammon or whatever. Mm. And it is not in our normal rules of communication that when somebody stands in the middle of a town square and shouts things that everyone within earshot is to take that as a imperative. Right. You don't, we right? don't drop it to get our pitchforks. Yeah. Right. But I don't know that it isn't the case now that there aren't clearer rules in the online space. And let's just for now, just re restrict ourselves to the Twitter space. Okay. For example, just to draw from our recent history that stop the steal hashtag stop mm -hmm. the steal was a call to action and was yes. written as a call to action was understood as a call to action. And there was no way to reasonably use that hashtag without understanding what it meant and what it was meant to accomplish. Yeah, totally agree. So if we look more broadly at what now gets called cancel culture, mm -hmm. you know, I do think that there is a sense in which one of the reasons that cancel culture gets called cancel culture is because there is a culture of shared understanding of certain rules of communication that draw a link between words and actions. Yeah, I mean, I think that's fair. I think, though, that, and this is one of the things that really was highlighted for me in the last month, is that even there, it's still a very different speech act from Stop the Steal, right? Like, if I'm canceling Louis C.K., I'm not 
in, even in some sort of like performative way, wishing his death. I'm going to interact differently with his media presence. I'm going to try to find ways to restrict him from getting my money and my attention. But I'm not calling for death in that way. So I agree with you that there's some sort of norms that arise around cancel culture. But actually, I'm, I'm not even convinced that we actually do have a shared and coherent understanding of what cancel culture is. I think we have a shared and coherent understanding of, let's say, like what cancel practices are. Let me ask you this. If someone were to start the, the hashtag, hashtag deplatform JK Rowling, which yes. probably is, which probably is. I'm a, sure that exists. Hashtag. Yeah. Is there any ambiguity at all in hashtag deplatform JK Rowling? No, that's a specific thing calling for a specific remedy. But that seems that, to me to be exactly like hashtag death to and hashtag stop the steal. These are specific directions for action. Death two becomes that on day four. I would argue that it's not that on days one and two and three. And I think that's really important. To be clear, like I don't have a problem with the hashtag deplatform JK Rowling because it's not calling for some sort of generalized hatred to a person or to an idea. It's calling for a specific remedy to a specific harm by the fact that a specific person has an outsized influence in certain spaces. Okay, um, but but hold on, hold on. Because, I mean, you and I as academics understand deplatform in a very specific way, which involves no violence yes. or no physical violence. But certainly someone could broadly interpret deplatform in a way, just like someone could broadly interpret stop the steal mm. to mean climb the Capitol steps and occupy the Senate. Yeah, I mean, I think think you get into a related problem that we're just talking about with serious versus non-serious utterances, which is how far semantically does a certain term go? When you say like you and I as academics have a specific understanding of the term, and when I'm willing to commit to the view that, yeah, when we're talking about the hashtag deplatform JK Rowling, that has a specific meaning. It's precisely because I'm willing to restrict its semantic range to a specific set of actions. Right, but not everyone who reads your tweet is. That becomes the problem, right? It's like, is that I'm always speaking to a much larger community than just folks who know me. Yeah, I mean, going back to Derrida, this is the postcard, right? Right, yeah. (laughs) Like, it's out there in the world now. So one of the places it often shows up has to do with, like, firing, right? Somebody does something outrageous, and yes, there are people calling for violence against this person, but the much more real threat that I think even a lot of folks feel is the threat of losing their job. And so we can ask questions, well, under what kinds of conditions is it fair to threaten somebody's job in this way? I think it's important to know that that's a very different kind of threat than threats for violence. Now, that's not to say threats for violence don't happen all the time. I mean, I think there's a lot of threats for violence that happen outside of this phenomenon of canceling broadly again on Twitter. So journalists are constantly getting death threats, especially women journalists, especially journalists of color. So these sort of underlying death threats just pervade the space of Twitter. One of the things that I'm worried about is that I'm worried that that our genuine concerns over what gets called cancel culture, hashtag platform JK Rowling, is actually covering over the seriousness of this background violence against especially women and people of color that yeah, is just the yeah. norm on Twitter. So that right. it's not like, it's not like, oh, we tell somebody who uses this platform, this, this hashtag deplatform or this hashtag death to Joe Powers, that Twitter is this lovely, kind space. It's already a cesspool. And I think one of the questions that I have as I watch this is like, how are we understanding the sets of practices that make it a cesspool are we properly distinguishing between different actors and different specific kinds of speech acts when we understand this? So in other words, it's not that I don't think that there's not a real phenomenon. 
it's that I don't think that we've analyzed all of the components of it very clearly. I think we often mush them together. Yeah, I want to push back on this just a little bit because it's a well-worn criticism now that big social media platforms are cesspools. Facebook, Twitter. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, they haven't gone after my beloved TikTok yet. But, <laughs> it's coming. Uh, I do think that for most users, they're not entirely cesspools, right? So I'm going to bracket out users whose only presence on those sites is to incite this kind of conflict. But for most people, these are the sort of unfortunate fringes of the platform. You know, I just told you that in 2017, So a year after this episode came out that Twitter expanded their terms of service to include much more expansive rules about hate speech and incitements of violence. But interestingly, the very next year in 2018, they also had another pretty massive expansion of their terms of service agreement to prohibit basically bots. Mm -hmm. And they did it in a kind of roundabout way. So they said, look, if this exact same content is published from multiple accounts, we're going to assume that this is bot work. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing about that 2018 development is it did show that a lot of the complaint that we now hear about the cesspool that is Twitter is the consequence of technologically innovative actors on the platform who have realized how the platform works. And this is part of the subplot Mm -hmm. of this episode is that you put the bait out there and you just need to get enough other people onto the hashtag, repeating the hashtag. But in order to even see that, you have to have a lot of people say it first. So Garrett Scholes in this episode uses several bot accounts to initially put the death to whomever hashtag out first, and then it's picked up by other people. So the idea here is that you're tapping into something that is there already. Yeah. But that it's not properly speaking what we would call a kind of populist movement. It's a sort of populist instigation that is the appearance of a populist movement. Exactly. It's like, what's it called? Astroturfing. I, I completely agree. I don't think that Twitter is just a cesspool or Facebook is. I think that there's this underlying capacity for cesspooliness, right? It's there. And I also think, <laughs> I also think that it, it yes, pulliness is my favorite new, <laughs> is that new word. <laughs> You're listening to Black Mirror Reflections, which is mostly a labor of love and is at present ad free. If you like what you hear and if you're hearing what you like, consider donating to us at patreon.com backslash Black Mirror Reflections. That's patreon.com backslash Black Mirror Reflections. And now back to our conversation. One of the things that I find fascinating about this episode also is, this is, might seem like a non sequitur, but autonomous flight is something that I'm kind of fascinated by because it's a much harder problem to solve than like self-driving cars because of this three-dimensional thing. And when this episode came out in 2016, we've talked a lot, and I know in other podcasts here too, about what technologies are possible and what aren't. 2016, autonomous flying was pretty 
far off. And from what I understand now, it's actually much, much, much closer. As was the level of facial recognition technology that is is clearly required for these ADIs in this episode to function. Yeah. So when I first saw this, the ADIs seemed like complete science fiction, and now they seem much less so. But one of the key things has to do with how swarms function. Because for a drone of that size to be autonomous and to calculate the movement of so many other drones in the way that autonomous vehicles, autonomous cars do, is well outside of our computing capacity. And so you have to develop shorthands to understand what your position in a swarm is, which is really a problem of networking. And so the questions of how swarms communicate and the same thing you're talking about here with um, seeding on Twitter, the same thing turns out to be true in swarms. What needs to happen is you need not just one or two, but you need a sort of certain small critical mass of individuals in a swarm to seed a signal so that the rest of the swarm will know to move in order to interact with the signal. So the way in which the drone technology works is crucial to the way in which the villain is going to play with it. And importantly, we are the drones here too, because our behavior is being seeded. So if I can understand your question, would it be fair to come back and ask the question, like, is Twitter in part, if we see it as a cesspool, is it in part because it's being seeded to be a cesspool and we're picking up on signals that it's a cesspool, which maybe aren't even actually that good of signals, but which actors for whom it's useful have figured out how to manipulate the information pathway so that it seems like a much bigger problem than it is. Is that fair? That is a completely fair question, but I might have an overly extended answer to that. So I'm okay with that as long as we come back to it. Okay. So I feel feel like we may or may not ever get back to the episode. (laughs) One of the really interesting things to me is, as you know, I've said many times, and I think even on this podcast, that one of the reasons to welcome machine intelligence in the future is that it has one great advantage over human intelligence right now, which is that It is built to think of itself as a system and not as an individual. And primarily, I think thinking of ourselves as individuals and not as parts of a system is what causes a great deal of human suffering and misery and destruction. Mm -hmm. So the fact that you talked about a swarm is really interesting to me because I sometimes in my classrooms will show my students a short clip of a a murmuration, right, of starlings. And it's a beautiful phenomenon to watch. Also completely impossible to understand because what each individual starling is doing is in milliseconds, right, responding to a number of stimuli and directions and naturally encoded behaviors that make it possible for the murmuration as a whole to move and to operate as it does. Mm -hmm. We seem so far not intelligent enough to do that. And it might be because we are so deeply embedded in certain historically locatable ideologies that resist that kind of... um, I mean, I'll just say it, socialist thinking, but that is the case. Now, I think that these social media platforms are actually built to enable that in us, but they're not accomplishing that possibly ideal goal because we're still embedded in a capitalist institution because those platforms are still profit generating corporations. I mean, it does remind me a lot of the advent of modern democracy. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like, this is really confusing. How does this work? And we did it, you know, in hindsight in a really shitty and imperfect way. But the idea still 
still is an idea that we are entirely capable of understanding how it should work. But we have greater pressures pressing down upon us that prevent us from realizing its potentialities. You know, I think it's weird. I didn't think I was going to talk so much about Derrida, but like one thing that Derrida says a lot and that I think he's really right about is, you know, he'll talk about this ideology you're talking about, which in, in terms of both capitalism, liberalism, but also humanism. And a lot of his work is premised on critiquing that, but he'll critique it in a context, which I suspect you and I are both sympathetic to, where we are ourselves ambiguously attached to it for good reasons. So whether or not it's true that an ADI ought to think of itself as an individual, I do think that there are good reasons that we do. I also completely agree with you that we mostly do so, or that we often do so in ways that are self-destructive, destructive community, pathological, and that it's probably the case that our social media right now, even though it doesn't need to, is designed to encourage that. But I'm not sure that I agree with you that there are good reasons for us to think about ourselves as individuals. I mean, I'd have to think about it more. Well, let me give an example um, in the context of this episode. Is that okay? Yeah, sure. Okay. So let's talk about that bot behavior that you were highlighting rightly. I think it is fair to regard both Tusk and Joe Powers as hooked into the cultural industry in such a way as to function like troll bots. That's their Mm -hmm. job. That's what they do. It's what they like to do. They seem to derive personal satisfaction from it. They do it well. They seed this hate. The fact that they are IRL people doesn't change the fact that they're behaving and paid to behave, right? They're both very well paid to do exactly what we see them doing. So I think that they both behave like bots. But for individual gain. Right. Like, I don't think that's a good example of bot behavior. Hmm. I don't think it's going to be an example of bot motivation, but I'm going to disagree with you. I think it is a good example of bot behavior. There are people who have figured out how to game the algorithm. You're right for their own personal gain, but their job in it is to do a certain kind of troll activity. Yeah, but it's their individual job. I mean, I do want to push back on this because that would seem to suggest that the function of the platform is to foment hate and division and possibly to incite violence. And that there are some people who could set aside their individual interests and operate on that platform for the purpose of the platform without any individual gain from doing so. And I just don't think that that is. Yeah, you're right. I don't don't want to say that. If I'm saying that, then I I would want to back off of that. I do think, though, that there's not a huge functional difference, right? That is to say that, that their individual motives line up not with the platform's motive, but with certain powerful capitalist interests that have funded the platform and also funded a lot of other aspects of life, that the system is set up so that their interests line up with the interests of these bigger systems. But that's where you can't take away the motivational interest because that is how capitalism works. Yeah. Is to say, we're going to line up your motivational interest with a system right. that is interested in promoting your individual interest. And one requirement of operating as a cog in that system or as a member of that swarm mm-hmm. is to prioritize yourself as an individual over the species, over nature, over, you know, whatever. Totally so agree. I, but yeah, but I want to I want to play those the consequences here a little bit, right? So here's what I'm worrying about and why I think the attachment to the individual might be helpful in some ways, right? So Tusk and Joe Powers and later on Tom Pickering, this minister who's going to be the next victim if he's not careful, they are much more important nodes in this system than you and I are. In fact, that's part of the reason why people hate them. They're, they are nodes who both for their own personal gain, but also 
in ways that's profitable to the whole system are primed to and are gleeful in spreading chaos and death and pain. In Joe Power's case, sort of celebrating the political death of a woman who was speaking on behalf of quote unquote, and let me be very clear, I'm putting this in quote here, unproductive members of a system. So they're going after the social benefits and social protections for people with disability as, as being not important enough. And so these are people who are profiting by making a quote unquote realistic and unsentimental look at the whole system, not noticing that they themselves profit greatly from this. If I'm a preschool teacher who deals with disabled kids and I'm seeing my resources to do so being limited by these people, if I'm thinking from the perspective of a group and not just an individual, why wouldn't I be warranted in thinking that their removal from this network, if I'm thinking about the whole network, I'm not sure that they're very valuable for the network. Now, yeah, I'm not sure that you're making the case for the moral value of prioritizing individualism over collectivist thinking mm-hmm. there. I think that what you're saying is, is that given a situation in which the reigning ideology is individualistic, the only way to protect the vulnerable or to protect yourself is to fight fire with fire. Yeah. So I, uh, to be clear, I think that's an unacceptable consequence, right? I don't think that we should tweet death to Joe Powers, even though I think it's probably true that given the system that we're in, it might not seem to a lot of people like there's a lot of recourse. But you do My, think that we should tweet hashtag deplatform JK Rowling. And deplatform Joe Powers. Yeah. Right. I think that deplatforming them is completely different. I mean, Part of what it gets to is like, what's the appropriate justice, which is, I think, a, a crucial thing in this episode and something that, again, the algorithms we have thus far, right, and I don't think this is sort of a feature of algorithms in general, but the algorithms we have thus far are not very fine-tuned to understand. But I, I think that understanding why, even though the kind of activity that a Joe Powers or a Tusk or a Tom Pickering is engaged in is mostly pernicious, that we ought to see them as having value that we don't ascribe to the drone. To that extent, I'm still comfortable with an individualistic system. I think that I may agree with you that given the current social and political and economic context in which we find ourselves, that there are good tactical, not strategic, but good tactical reasons to valorize a certain kind of individualistic thinking. Again, I don't think that this is long-term a good strategy, but I think- Yeah, that, that's fair. You know, I, to, to, as a stopgap, it, it's a good tactic. But this actually leads me back to an element that I think is often overlooked in this episode, which I want to ask you about. So as they're trying to uncover who's at the root of this hijacking of the ADIs, They interview a woman who was a former Defense Department employee or something Mm -hmm. who had, like many people, had made a kind of inelegant remark online and had gotten piled on online and started receiving death threats. And she recounts this story about how awful it is to be online harassed. And that is Mm -hmm. anyone who's been online harassed knows you really start to question your species when you find yourself in the middle of something like that. It causes her to become suicidal and Mm. she actually attempts suicide. And the detective asks her because she sees the kind of slash marks on her wrist. Mm. And she asks her, who found you? And she says, well, my flatmate found me. He came in and I was bleeding everywhere and he was dragging me out of the bathroom. And I just kept saying, no, but I'm naked. 
And I want to say that I think this is actually the most brilliant inclusion of an otherwise throwaway substory in this episode, because what her story is basically communicating is how much more powerful shame is than Mm. even death is like fear of shame is even more than fear of death is so she's literally bleeding to death and she's more worried about her flatmate who's saving her life seeing her naked yeah that's i mean that's that's a great point and i mean i think in context of the episode and the context of the harm she suffered makes a lot of sense too because she's just been publicly naked in in front of all of britain and so she's terrified to sort of, of this continued exposure and rightly right if i could just say that this is why i do think that sometimes a kind of focus on the individual and in mm-hmm. particular in exactly the way that people criticize mm-hmm. cancel culture as operating mm-hmm. which is to shame an individual because we all understand the impact of shame that the, mm-hmm. the impact of shame can be as bad or worse than death. In some cases, that is a legitimate, maybe even moral, tactical response to mm-hmm. antisocial behavior yeah. in the world that we actually live in right now on Twitter. One of my favorite novels is Salman Rushdie's Shame. So I don't know if you've read that one, but it's mostly this struggle between powerful people in a country that he's very explicit is essentially Pakistan, even though it goes by a different name, where the people in power are all utterly shameless and are incapable of shame. And what ends up happening is their shenanigans with regards to one another and their complete shamelessness creates in in one of their daughters a, a monster of shame. But one of the things that I think is really helpful there is that Rushi, on the one hand, understands the very powerful effect that shame can have. But at the same time, the story is structured on the fact that the harm that shame can do to us and the fear of shame is unevenly distributed in our society. And so back to these hierarchies that we're talking about, I think that what you're saying is completely right about 99% of us, 99% of the time. The problem is that there are 1% of us who are more or less able to act with impunity and who are largely shameless. And if I think of some of the most toxic features of Twitter... These are like our friend Donald Trump, Elon Musk, which I'm going to get, I'm going to get hate mail now. I'm going to get canceled because Elon Musk's fans on Twitter are legion. He's going to get hate mail for me. For talking <laughs> That's about right. Yeah, I know. This is another place where you disagree. This is, a, this is maybe one of the disagreements <laughs> that Evan and I have that our friendship will not abide us talking about it, but we differ in our evaluations of the Musk. <laughs> Yeah, but he and and Trump, there are folks who, by dint of their wealth and power and by dint of their celebrity status, are beyond the reach of shame. Yeah, and there's also like 10% of us that are sociopaths. Yeah, and and probably most billionaires, probably 100% of billionaires. Yeah, right. And we're talking about people for whom shame has no sting. Well, but also the, the, the material conditions, like even a sociopath, I think, I mean, the things that shame allows threats to employment, which I'm not endorsing any of these things, but just threats to employment, ability to interact with others, the kinds of things that Plato talks about in the Republic as what happens by our social visibility. The sociopath still has to consider those things as extrinsic factors, even if they're not intrinsic to them. The sociopathic oligarch, the sociopathic tyrant, the sociopathic billionaire doesn't. And I think what we see in this episode, I mean, Tom Pickering, the minister, is a sociopath. When he finds out he's number one on the list, the way that he's going to respond to this is he's going to figure out how to seed somebody else so that they'll, they'll get higher up on the list than him. 
Right. And this is after his first strategy, which was let's go North Korea. Yeah, right. Like, <laughs> let's shut down the whole internet. And again, the reason why Sean, the, the boss of the detectives, who's actually the person who, who sets the trap, because Blue and Karen have both figured out that it's a trap and not to set it. But Sean jumps in. And of course, in the worst things you're going to regret saying as they're watching the system go back and he goes, I'm sorry, but somebody had to do it. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, no, Sean, the bee is already out of that hive. You're <laughs> so I was waiting all episode to say that just for you. That was my little gift uh, for you. <laughs> so for listeners, that is a reference to the fact that I have noted that almost every episode of this podcast so far that the guest has said, well, those horses are already out of the barn. And I told Evan that he could not say that the horses were out of the barn. And look at this asshole. He comes up with the bees <laughs> are out of the hive. <laughs> but, but, but I mean, the bees are out of the hive, right? Am I right in this? Is there other episodes in Black Mirror where climate change even shows up at all? Or I guess I shouldn't say climate change, but mass extinction and environmental degradation. Does that show up in other episodes? No. As a matter of fact, I was saying to someone else in another podcast episode that I recently recorded but hasn't come out yet, but I asked my guests what are the future episodes that they would like to see. And I have a kind of running list of Black Mirror episodes that I want to see in season six. And well, this was prior to last year, but I wanted to see a pandemic episode. I wanted to see an episode about programmable matter. <laughs> the other one was that Dude. I wanted wanted to see an episode about climate change. I mean, I worry that this is a limitation of the show. The fact that there's not a climate. I mean, in this almost Heideggerian way, it's this sort of like horizon against which all sort of our, our technological striving happens. This horizon, this ending that might overtake us. In the words of Leonard Cohen, when our goal falls short of the reach. That um, That's where the light gets in. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that's where the dark comes. <laughs> that's where the dark overtakes everything. <laughs> But no, I mean, it's this sort of this horizon of the end. And in this case, and for the most part, I think Black Mirror, because it's interested in the imminent possibilities in our social interactions, doesn't deal with these sort of figures of the end. And it's interesting that it does show up here in the bees, which of course is a real possibility. And, you know, the, the funny thing is that as they talk about these mass extinctions, like to a certain degree, they're right. You can prop them up in different ways. So we probably could, I would imagine, create technologies that would pollinate in various ways. And I'm not even sort of going to some sort of nostalgia, well, but what's lost if we don't have bees? Except for to notice that the, the problem enters in with this point you're making about systems, the system that creates that, and they're very clear about this, we're not going to make, we're not, you think we'd give you money just to save the planet? No, we would only do that if we thought there was a national security interest, namely that we can spy on everybody at all times. And so my fear about something like the, the, the loss of the bees is that we're sort of further expanding and further enmeshing capitalist systems into even how we interact with the natural world, which is a this sort of terrifying possibility that this episode requires and brings up without really addressing anything. Yeah, and I think one of the really interesting things that this episode does is that it includes as a plot point the imitation of nature. Mm -hmm. So the ADI, the bees, the autonomous drone insects, an imitation of nature as the thing that will end humanity. Right? Yeah, that's rather a really good than, point. Rather yeah. than nature itself. But it's not by the machine, it's by us in this case. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, it's always going to be by us in any right. case. Right. Yeah. But I do think that it is really interesting that this episode uses, as you say, this mimetic character of social media as being the cause of our end. 
but it does so by mimicking it, that end, mm. in a natural yeah. form, a bee. A bee that we yeah. have already eradicated. And that would have been our end had we not accelerated right. our end through these other social and political means. Yeah. I think that for all of the complaints that people rightly have about big tech companies making decisions about what counts as permissible public speech, this is really the only stopgap we have right now. Because, I mean, here's the thing. All right, so the internet should be a public utility. <laughs> These social media platforms should be publicly owned. And then at least the laws that we do have about what hate speech is, what incitement to violence is, what harassment is, they would actually apply effectively. But since our nation states have decided that the Enlightenment was 300 years ago and we out, right? It's <laughs> corporations now. It's multinational corporations yeah. that are making these decisions. And so just to get back to the point that I started with, I think that as a kind of generic concern, of course, I'm worried about granting Jack Dorsey and Mark Zuckerberg the right to articulate what counts as permissible and impermissible public speech. I am not immediately concerned about their tactical decision to say, absent a general social strategy about how we're going to deal with these kinds of speech problems or speech violations or disruptions of the social order through speech acts, Absent that, then we've got to make some immediate tactical decisions. And, you know, this week it was, look, we're banning Trump from Facebook yeah. and Twitter. First the Google Play Store and then the Apple Store and then AWS, which is Amazon Web Services, said, you know what, we're taking Parler offline. And, you know, and I 100% get and am sympathetic to and am also worried about the power that that implicitly grants to these corporations. But again, absent any other strategy, these seem to me like effective tactical moves because they are primarily aimed at shaming, very publicly shaming the behavior of someone who these platforms want to hold up as an offensive participator. Yeah, I completely agree. And again, I share your worries, but I also, I'm 100% glad this happened. In fact, like you, I suspect I wish it had happened sooner. But so we're not shaming Trump, right? We're not shaming... Oh, I totally disagree. I think the two things that happened in the last few days that have probably infuriated this president a million times more than being impeached... And losing an election. And losing an election, <laughs> right? The two things that have infuriated him the most in the last four years have mm -hmm. been being banned from Twitter and the PGA, the Professional Golf Association, <laughs> basically saying that his Mar-a-Lago course is course non grata. I think, I mean, yeah, so I think that's fair. Like, I'm not sure how far shame with him goes, right? We know that his advisors made him eventually give the very weak stand down that he gave. No amount of public shame from us would have made that happen. If he had Twitter now, he would be doing all the same stuff. So yeah, I think that we've temporarily incapacitated him. I'm not sure that that amounts to shame. I mean, I'd have to think I about I don't that. know that. I mean, who would want to get into the mind of Donald Trump? But yeah. I do think that we saw a number of things over the past few days. So he was indefinitely banned from Facebook. He mm. was then permanently banned from Twitter. 
he immediately starts to scramble around and try to find other Mm -hmm. avenues to communicate his message Mm -hmm. quickly. Apple and Google and Amazon shut down Parler. And the day after that happens, which was the day before yesterday, what happens? He suddenly meets with his vice president for the first time since the Capitol insurrection. I don't think that that's like evidence of shame, but I think that it is evidence of a behavioral alteration that we mean for shame to accomplish. Okay. So here's why I'm sort of like pushing on this point specifically, right? Is because I, and I think you're probably, it might be shame, like inside his head, I don't want to go there. And I don't know how relevant it is. I do think that behaviorally and descriptively, what we can say is that we found a lever to his impunity. I think that one of the things that is, I, I really worry lacking a lot of times in how we analyze a lot of forms of behavior is understanding what this power dynamic, what I've been trying to call in our conversation here, impunity. That is to say the ability of some people to act without much restriction. And I think our system magnifies that and amplifies it in all sorts of ways, Trump being a classic example of it. And and I think what we're seeing is his being rendered impotent. Now, would you say that the same behaviors on the parts of people like Lindsey Graham and Kelly Loeffler, who, you know, this whole capital insurrection happens. Yeah. And the country is like for shame, you know, Jack Hughes. I do think we've seen them. And then suddenly we see these lapdogs of white nationalism and Mm -hmm. anti-democracy and corporate 1% authoritarianism that suddenly they start reversing their tune. And I feel like there is no other way to explain the change in tune from people like Lindsey Graham and Mitch McConnell and Kelly Loeffler, except for the fact that they realize they're being shamed. And and I think the fact that we don't see this from people like Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz is evidence that they're sociopathic or, you know, they just- (laughs) Yeah, well, they've got a different theme. I think shame here is a political act and not just a psychological act or not- yeah, and I don't think you're yeah. saying that it is, right? So, I mean, it's not an individual act. Like, right. you know, I mean, yeah. like shame is something that it happens interpersonally. Yeah. But back to the deplatforming specifically, I, I think that the, the most relevant shame there, and even there, I think it's highly mediated, isn't Trump's. It's Dorsey's and Zuckerberg's. Hmm. Because we knew this was coming. The reason why they finally did it is they said, well, we know that more is coming. We're seeing more chatter about this. But we already, again, like from our positions, we already saw this coming and we are not privy to half of the information that they are. So they knew that this was coming and they didn't care. I think what ultimately shamed them was partially the public reaction, but even more than that, and and both Twitter and Facebook have said this, it was their employees. It was the revolt of the people that they actually interact with on a daily basis. I I don't like to talk about Facebook and Twitter as the individual Mark Zuckerberg and the individual Jack Dorsey, like, you know. Oh, no, I I agree. I just mean their decision. Yeah, but it's not ultimately their decision. I mean, there are stakeholders, there are employees, there are boards of directors, there are investors. I personally think that both Jack Dorsey as an individual and Mark Zuckerberg as an individual loathe Donald Trump as an individual. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, you're right. They're parts of these decisional networks, but the mechanisms that make those decisions happen are mechanisms to which most of us have no real purchase. Right. And so I think that where shame gets useful in this analysis 
is understanding why in this case shame was able to have that purchase. Yeah. And and I think that's where it becomes relevant. Cuz yeah, like, you know, you're right, Zuckerberg and Dorsey as individuals who cares, right? But positionally the way in which their companies and the decision making processes that they set up were forced to consider things that that were being said by a lot of people for years and years now. I think that this is where I think shame is most relevant. And analyzing allies like Graham and Loeffler. So let me pivot a little bit because I I have another question, specific question that I want to ask you that involves a kind of extended thought experiment. (laughs) So I think that this episode could have happened in 2016 when it premiered. Mm -hmm. And I think some people would argue that it was happening in 2016. And this is what is now what the right calls cancel culture. However, I don't think it could happen today. What has happened between 2016 and 2021 is this really deep division of the social platform worlds where people are operating with Mm. entirely separate and incommensurable views of the world. I think if the first 15 minutes of this episode happened exactly as it happened in the episode today. Mm -hmm. So, you know, somebody starts a death to hashtag that person dies, then a second person dies and then a third person dies. And then by the fourth person, they realize that there's a legitimate connection between the hashtag and the deaths. Mm -hmm. I think that immediately all of those social networks, Twitter and YouTube and Facebook would be overrun with conspiracy theories about how this is false flags and this is not really happening and these deaths were faked. And so this idea of the passive but participatory public that this episode is depending on for its plot development, I don't think exists anymore. It's too divided online. Well, I agree with you that it's divided, but I don't know that it means it doesn't exist. I think it might just be more heterogeneous. So, but it has to it has to be homogenous for this plot to work. Why? It, it has to be largely homogenous. Let's say it happened because, today. Because, because okay, yeah, let's imagine that yeah. happened today. Like if the right and the left, you know, these imaginary characters, right. the right and the left. If this happened today, right? The second everyone caught on to it, and by everyone, I mean social media participants, it would just be a contest between the right's death to hashtags and yeah. the left's death to hashtags, right? The result of which would be what? Well, that someone would die. And then? But it would not satisfy the teeth of consequence manifesto's writer's aim which was to show that everyone will hop on to a hate campaign, no matter who they are. And he would not have killed 370,000 people. Or I think so. Million. That's interesting because I was totally with you until the last move. I think that he would still, and again, now we're getting into the head of a, of a, a terrorist, right? But I think he would still regard it as proof, but it's in now in multiple worlds. So, you know, the right's got their hate campaign, the left's got theirs. So ultimately, like, Trump or Biden dies. But what would then happen the next day, after that death, the next day, instead of killing 400,000 people, when they did finally trigger the trap, they would kill 20 million people. And there are more No, because 20 million people don't use the same... Hashtag. I mean, that's the whole thing that the no, hashtag- but it's it's any death too hashtag. Because remember Nick. Oh, that's so, yeah, so. Remember Nick, that guy. He's the guy I identify with the most in the story. The guy who tweets death to Garrett Scholl. Yeah, like in a moment, in a moment of sort of like. Well, he knows like, like he's not really going to kill him. 
Yeah, he's right, not going to yeah. kill him. And he knows right. that, but he's just trying to signal to him. I know what I would do. And I talked about this with Emily, my wife when we were watching this. Like, I would do some sort of thing that I thought was a hilarious joke. Back to the non-serious utterance, right? Like death to you, Emin Allred or something. Yeah, like death to myself or like, <laughs> or like death not to tacos. I would never do that. But like, you know, like death to <laughs> Applebee's or something, right? Which I would think was really funny. But the algorithm, yeah. because it doesn't know jokes... Not that it can't know jokes, but this particular algorithm doesn't know jokes. I would still get killed. And that's what we see happen to Nick. I think that a scenario described what would happen is not that it wouldn't happen, but it would happen at an even more devastating scale. You've 100% convinced me. Yeah, like <laughs> I think that, yeah. I mean, I'm not even going to argue that. I do think there's something important at stake in it. And this is why I don't think it's ultimately about cancel culture. I think what you're pointing to, I agree with, which is this sort of diffusion of cancel culture erases its pervasive power. But what it doesn't yeah. erase is sort of the pervasive violence that cancel culture neither created nor simply amplified. That cancel culture is sort of one move in a much bigger game. And what this terrorist Scholes is operating on is, it seems to me, on the assumption that any participation in this in any way, so any demand for justice, is reducible to the same as wishing death for somebody and therefore punishable by death to, their, to, to oneself. And this is where I think the, the genre of the episode becomes relevant. Is this satire? If it's satire, I, I actually think it fails. Because satire depends upon you seeing some sort of feature caricatured, some sort of feature of the real world caricatured in some way in the show. But I don't think that this is really caricaturing the kind of culture that we're talking about. I think instead, and I think where it's successful, is it's trying to articulate a way in which we allow our cruelty to operate, but also the fragility of the institutions which allow us to move from cruelty to a justified demand for justice and to a measured demand for justice. You know, so much in philosophy, going again, going back to Plato, is that philosophy and justice are about the ability to assign the proper measure. And there are measured ways to use cancel culture. If somebody has impunity, finding ways to force them to answer for their actions, which I think is what's happening with Parler right now. People in Parler thought they had impunity and they're yeah. going to be discovering now that they do not. Yeah. That's completely warranted. Outrage in that case is not hate. The problem is that as technologies change and as, as we sort of become part of these mass societies, which is, is inevitable, our ability to translate outrage into a justified measure response changes. But yeah. the main person who's responsible for this episode is not the people using the hashtag. It's Garrett Scholes, right? He's the person, he and the government who, who set up these drones that should have, which we didn't even get into the question of the mass surveillance, right? The drones, if they had just mimicked bees, none of this would have happened. The problem is the government wanted to do some surveillance. So it's the government creating this tool, this weapon that's now flying throughout the United Kingdom. And this one disgruntled person knowing how to access this weapon, that's where the response becomes unmeasured. Okay, can I just say affectionately that I think that you're saying that the people responsible for this are ultimately the people who created the systems in which it operates is evidence of what I was saying before, which is that it's not actually individuals here. It's systems and the way that possibilities for acting and impossibilities of acting are permitted within certain systems are what's really the issue here. And so the extent to which we think about ourselves and not the systems is the problem. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree. Where Mike, so, so yeah, you're right. Yeah. Okay, we're done. Thank you, everyone, <laughs> for listening. And <laughs> at the conclusion of this episode, please make sure to check out our post at readmore, writemore, thinkmore, be more.com.
That's readmorewritemorethinkmorebemore.com, where we'll include a list of further readings, references, and links to things that we talked about in this episode. Okay, Emin, so this is a new development since the first time that you were on this podcast, but now I ask all of my guests at the end of every episode three questions. So here they are. I'm going to state them all in a row. You can answer them all in a row. So the first question is, what do you think the lesson of Hated in the Nation is? Second question is, what worries or concerns or scares you the most about the world that is depicted in Hated in the Nation? And the third is on a scale of one to 10, with one being a nightmarish dystopia and 10 being a kind of utopia, where would you place the world of hated in the nation? All right, go. All right. So I am so excited because I was really sad I didn't get to do this because it didn't exist yet on the first one. So what is the takeaway? I mean, again, I think that the throwaway takeaway that I don't want to make is is about cancel culture, which I think there's a lot going on there. I'm not super interested in. As I said, where I think the episode becomes much more scary has to do with this question of how do we negotiate questions of justice? Are we developing, as our technology develops, are we developing mechanisms to negotiate questions of justice in ways that are democratic and equitable? My biggest worry is that we are failing to do so. And I don't think that what Garrett Scholes does here is a necessary outcome of our hatred. But I do think it's an imminent possibility. And I think it's one that the systems that we have right now are designed to amplify. Mm -hmm. And so I worry that we are, in fact, setting up for these systems of mass death. And again, I think we saw that last week. I think last week was not as catastrophic as it could have been because it was not a very big signal yet. But this is not the first time that message propagated through the hive, and it's not going to be the last time. And we don't even know how deadly that message was yet because we are still waiting on the inauguration to happen. Yeah, this, this, the signal is not done yet. The swarm is still moving, and we don't yeah. know just how deadly it is. And we can be reasonably confident it's going to get more deadly. So, And because of that, I would rate this episode probably as like a two- or a three. Because, yeah, I mean, the technology that was in place there, which is utterly plausible to me, involved a right-wing fascist, which is what I think Skulls ultimately is, and government neoliberal surveillance uniting together unwittingly in order to murder potentially all of their citizens, right? There were enough bees to kill everybody. It just didn't happen that way. It's utterly plausible. And on top of that, the threat of climate collapse is looming over it. Thank you so much for joining me again today, Amon. This was super yeah, fun. I had a good time too. Thank you so much. And I just want to remind everybody that Again, you can log in to our Facebook page or tweet us at BMR underscore podcast. Let us know how you think Emma did. You've been listening to Black Mirror Reflections. Check us out and please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you download your regular podcasts. 